1: The third hotel traces Claire's time in Havana as she follows her once-dead husband through the newly tourist-filled streets and charts her less-than-perfect marriage. It is a hauntingly beautiful novel, strange, murky, and shot through with grief and longing. It is rewarding yet defiant and issues pat resolutions to offer up something much more interesting instead, a map of the border between the real and the unreal. It has been called gorgeous, frighteningly smart, a book that sings, a beguiling little masterpiece, and achingly human, a fever dream of a book. Laura Vandenberg is the author of two story collections, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us and The Isle of Youth, and the novel Find Me. She is the recipient of a Rosenthal Family Foundation Award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the Bard Fiction Prize, an O. Henry Award, and a McDowell Colony Fellowship. Born and raised in Florida, she lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts with her husband and dog. Also joining us this evening, uh, again, returning, uh, it's a treat to have her, Asia Gable's writing has appeared in BOM, The Kenyan Review, Glimmer Train, and elsewhere. A Former cellist, she earned her BA at Wesleyan University, her MFA at the University of Virginia, and has a PhD in literature and creative writing from the University of Houston. Asia has been the recipient of fellowships from the Suwannee Writers Conference, Literary Arts Oregon, and the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, where she was a fellow in fiction. She currently lives in Los Angeles. We're thrilled to have them with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome.
2: Um, It's so amazing to be at um, Skylight and to see this beautiful room. Thank you so much for coming. Um, My reading copy of The Third Hotel has been lost to the road by now, but thank goodness I'm in a bookstore, so I'm just going to take this one. Um, And I'm going to read just a very short section um, to elaborate a little bit on what um, Dylan said in his beautiful introduction. Uh, The Third Hotel concerns a couple named Claire and Richard, and Richard was a horror film scholar, which is my secret dream job. Um, And he is um, killed in a hit-and-run car accident. And this chapter gets into uh, a little bit of what was going on with Claire and Richard um, before his death. So here's a little bit of The Third Hotel. In her former life, Claire was a sales rep for Crop. Her area was Elevator Technologies and her territory was the Midwest. She liked the job because it involved an endless amount of travel to seemingly anonymous places. She had been to Nebraska 47 times. What was there to see in Nebraska? A surprising amount, really. She knew where to get the best steak in Omaha. When she cut into it, blood pooled on the white plate. She had seen dawn turn the plains as lustrous and vast as an ocean. Once late at night, she parked her rental car on the side of the road and walked into a cornfield. She stood on a dirt path surrounded by dark stalks, and imagined a harrowing chase through the corn that culminated in her murder at the hands of a mass killer with a knife. In the night sky, she spotted the red flash of planes through gossamer clouds and if she listened very carefully, more carefully than she had listened to anything in months or maybe even in years, she was able to make out the dull roar of their passing. She got back into her rental car and drove away and wondered if this was what people meant when they talked about mindfulness. Early in her career, she learned that one of the most important rules of travel was this, the answer to nearly everything could be found in the signs. This way to baggage claim, this way to the ticket counter, this way to Cleveland, this way to Omaha, this way to the hotel bar. Travel was one of the few arenas in life where clear and correct direction was so readily at hand. Lately, she had been tasked with selling a new kind of cable to find hotels and high-rise office buildings and factories. This cable was made of carbon fiber and allowed elevators to travel twice as fast as they could with steel. They lived in New Scotland, a town on the outskirts of Albany. In their condominium, she kept a small rolling suitcase in the bedroom closet, stocked with miniature toiletries, exercise clothes, an inflatable neck pillow, and the book she brought with her on every flight but could never seem to finish. The Two Faces of January by Patricia Highsmith. It wasn't an especially long novel, but on plain, she could only read a few paragraphs before the words filled her with a crippling and inexplicable dread, driving the book back down into the depths of her shoulder bag. It was not so much the story that unsettled her, but hidden things she sensed quivering under the surface. Subtext, she supposed this was called, and she did not care for it. Every time she saw her suitcase in the bedroom closet, Tucked behind a mesh laundry bin, she imagined it was waiting for her second secret self. She traveled so frequently, it was not uncommon for her to wake in the middle of the night and think for a moment, where am I? She did not find this disconcerting even when it happened in her own bed, but once she made the mistake of mentioning those midnight thoughts to her husband and he looked at her like she was terminally ill The travel had long been a point of contention between them. Why bother being married if you're always leaving? A reasonable question and she couldn't say that she had an answer beyond the demands of her work. She wanted to be married and she wanted to leave. The two did not seem mutually exclusive. She had this second secret self that she didn't know how to share with anyone and when alone that self came out into the open. In the months before his death, her husband's own secret self started coming out into the open, too. She could only assume this other self had been waiting inside him all along. The year of the great change. He was the same, and he was different. The way he looked when his sleep changed. His face used to be smooth and expressionless, almost mask-like. But then one night, she found him sleeping with lips parted into a wide, unsettling smile. He switched coffee mugs, trading out the exorcist for the ghoulish face of Michael Myers. He was newly skittish around dogs. He stopped adding salt to his food. He stopped eating bananas. His pace on the sidewalk changed. He used to be a brisk, impatient walker, and then one day he began moving so slowly and contemplatively, it was as though every tree branch was a source of wonder. Claire struggled to imagine what 40 years into a life, would cause a person to suddenly change the way they walked. There were alien, interminable silences when she called from the road, and when she was home, he took long, solitary strolls in the evening hours, a symptom that would eventually lead to his demise. Another symptom. He started demanding to know what she did on the road, how she accounted for all those hours alone, no matter how many times she told him the simple truth. In a hotel room, her favorite thing in all the world was to switch off every light and everything that made a sound, TV, phone, air conditioner, faucets, and sit naked on the polyester comforter and count the breaths as they left her body. Naked, her husband would shout, as though she had provided him with damning evidence. He had been an angry person for as long as she had known him, but it was a secretive anger. Most people found him loose and lighthearted, Easygoing. That was the word people used, and in time she became suspicious of anyone who could be described in such terms what was so easy about going. Naked and alone, she would say back, naked and alone. As a married couple, they'd had perfect years, and they'd had shit years, but she had never in her life experienced a year that so thoroughly dismantled her with confusion. On her next trip, she thought about what he would see if he ever were to trail her on the road. A woman marking up sales reports with a pink highlighter. A woman watching workout infomercials with a volume on mute. A woman eating room service quesadillas in the bathtub instead of reading that novel she claimed to be nearly finished with. A woman doing a little exercise routine Squats and sit-ups, bicep curls with bottled waters, completed with a hope that he would notice the smooth lines when he put his hands on her body. A woman breathing naked on the toilet seat. A woman breathing naked in an armchair. A woman breathing naked before the bathroom mirror in the kind of lighting that could make a person reconsider every choice they had ever made in life. (laughs) A woman breathing naked in the dark. And I'll stop there. Thank you.
0: Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, what a wonderful introduction to that book. Um, the reason I had read, I read this book, I think back in, gee, is it possible January? You had galleys really early. Yeah. And um, we you had been looking for travel tri- tips to Portugal. And mm-hmm. I had just gone to Portugal. And so I sent you this email with a big itinerary um so I think it's appropriate that sort of the way I found this book was through travel that trip had been really important I had been there alone um and when I read this this um woman alone in a a country she's never been to um the book kept me up at night and I and I've seen people say that about this book it's haunting in a way that a lot of literary fiction is not haunting it's it's disturbing um uh, but 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 um not in a a bad way in a way like you when you go to see horror movies, that's the sort of feeling that you want um so I would like to start by talking about the idea of travel and Havana and Cuba as a location mm-hmm. for this book yeah um I'm curious why you chose that place, and what your research process was like, um, how much time you spent there, if you yeah. spent there. Yeah.
2: yeah, no, thank you. That's, I think that's a great place to begin. And it's true, you gave me this amazing uh, email, and I think I sent the book as like a small, a small thanks yeah, for yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it seems like nice, nice symmetry that we're we're here talking about it tonight. Um I think, uh, I mean, I was coming at, I think, the subject of travel from a few different directions. Um, the, the chapter that I read from goes on to sort of chronicle Claire's travels as, uh, as a sales rep and the various kind of odd things that she discovers while in transit. Um, there's a fingernail in a hotel room drawer. Some people have asked me, like, how did you come up with that? That's so weird. And I'm like, it happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry to be able to like tell you that. Like a fully
0: intact fingernail. Yeah, it was an.
2: Ac- I mean, it was an acrylic nail, but still, and it was like right on top of the Bible. And I just in the book, it's a it's a real fingernail. So I just made it like a little bit grosser than it was. Um, than it was in life. So I, I like to do that in fiction. Uh, so it's um, you know, I, I was traveling a lot. i had published two books in fairly sort of close succession, first second story collection and first novel. And I felt like I was kind of constantly in motion and in and, and moving through transit spaces. And I was I find transit spaces fascinating. I mean, I think that there's so much kind of like Granular human strangeness and interestingness that is on display in transit spaces. I mean, they are really intimate in a very visceral way. Um, I'm an anxious flyer, so I can't really sleep on planes. But you know, I, on a long flight or like on an international flight, I've had the experience of like the person next to me falls asleep and they're dreaming. Um, what a what a deeply intimate thing to witness a stranger's dream, and yet they're anonymous in the sense that there's this sort of like, you know pact of silence around it right like it would be a breach of social protocol presumably to shake them on the shoulder and be like is it a good dream Is it weird <laughs> um What's, what's what's going on uh, so I think that that, that relationship between um, intimacy and anonymity um, expression and silence in transit spaces has always been really interesting to me and the more I was traveling myself and sort of moving out of these kind of luminal spaces of um, airports and hotels and you know train stations and and so on the more I became attuned to those types of details um, I think the other piece, and this kind of links up to uh, to Cuba a little bit more, I mean, the other piece um, of travel that's always been of interest to me is just the culture of tourism. I mean, I was born and raised in Orlando, Florida, which is a part of the state where um, tourism has been a really powerful shaper of economy and culture. Um, I'm, I've long been interested in the way that um, Florida is narrated by outsiders and the way that um, those narratives are incomplete often. Um, and so that that is just something that i've i've kind of long a landscape that i've long been interested in and one of the um you know in uh th- there were a few specific connections with with havana um the first was uh, just reading about the city um, and the kind of travel narratives that were shaping the city uh, after the travel restrictions were loose, loosened. So like late 2014, early 2015, where Havana was in like every travel magazine, every travel blogger was writing about it. And it was like, look, there's an old car. It was perfectly Instagrammable. Take a photo with it. Yeah, with the sunset and like, and go on with your life. Um, and I was really interested in the way the place was being narrated and again, sort of what was being fore- foregrounded, what was in the background, what perhaps was being omitted altogether. Um, and even though Orlando and Havana are not comparable contexts for a million different reasons, of course, um, that did feel like an initial point of entry for me. Um, the second point of entry was film. I knew that, um, I keep a thought log when I'm between projects and I just sort of record what I'm paying attention to. So something that was coming up in the thought log was um – I was writing about horror films I was writing about transit spaces I was writing about marriage I was writing about aging parents but of course I have no sense of like how all of these things could come to kind of live in the same space if if they could at all um, but I, I came upon when I was looking deeper into to the world of horror um this movie called Juan of the Dead uh, which came out in two thousand eleven and was sort of widely regarded as Cuba's first horror movie um, and it's a zombie movie it's like bloody and and great um and and so that was that provided more synergy between um place and and sort of subject and then the the last thing that I'll say about that is that I um, I teach in the creative writing program at Harvard. I live in Cambridge, Mass. And now, um, and they have an amazing uh, Latin studies uh, department. Mm-hmm. And I would anything that was connected to Cuba. If there was a lecture or something, I would go. And I, there was this wonderful scholar named Paloma Duong who gave this incredible talk on consumer culture in contemporary Havana. And she was talking a lot about tourism. And I realized at a certain point, because I'd been reading a tremendous amount of film scholarship, that she. The language that she was using, you know, she was talking about, like, gazes and lenses, and I was like, oh, it's so similar to what you would read in in in, in, c- in cinematic language. There was yeah. so much overlap, and so I think it was actually her work and hearing her speak that really provided that very, very vital bridge between character,
0: subjects, and place. Yeah. You do a really nice job. I think there's a lot of books that use foreign locations as a place to... Make the reader or and the character just feel alienated, and then you end up like um, excluding or alienating that country as well, that place. Um, and in here, there's a real interaction with the place. Like it seems very important that this place is caught in time, um, and that it was closed and now open, and that there's like a that that she's she's moving through it instead of just on it or mm-hmm. around it um and since you mentioned films and you wrote so wonderfully about the major film influences on LitHub mm-hmm. for this book yeah. um Particularly, you um I liked that you mentioned um the Babadook, yeah, which I love the Duke is so wonderful, so good. Um, I'm seeing nods of recognition, yeah. yeah. Can you talk since this is LA? Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about film horror movies, what you love about them, and for sure, and, and what as a writer can you take from the film world?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, and you know, the Babadook is there. Probably some sort of ho- ho- like real horror purist who would be like, that's not a real horror movie. It's too psychological, you know. Um, but I, I think that in some ways it's kind of my. It's the. It's the. It's the of course, there are many different types of horror films and many types of horror viewers but I love um, I think for those of you who haven't seen the movie it's about a mother and a son who are under really intense psychological pressure for various reasons and they become menaced by this presence called the Babadook Um, and yet the movie does this really brilliant thing where the monster is never fully revealed Um, like it is it's the presence of the monster is powerfully felt but the creature itself never kind of fully emerges into view and so, and I love the ambiguity that that movie navigates where it's the sort of question of is this a real supernatural force that is sort of beset upon the characters or is this a force that the psychological weather of the characters has generated? Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately the scariest thing I think for me in the Babadook is is not necessarily even the creature but what the pressure of this presence causes the characters to do to one another. Um, And so I think horror has the power through like very extreme dislocations of reality to find a new language for really central, fundamental human questions. You know, who am I? Who can I trust? Um, I think the denial of history is a really Big thing in horror, whether it's like personal history, cultural history, natu- um, national history. Um, what what's the kind of cost of that looking away? Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that is always like rotten to the core. Uh, it will eat you alive. You know that. I think mm-hmm. horror really digs into that um, that 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 idea in a very interesting, very powerful way. Um, so it's it's sort of yeah. I mean, I think that the kind of to me like the most powerful, the most interesting horror is really grounded in those central human questions, but it uses the these distortions of reality and this kind of descent into a
0: nightmare state to find a different, a different language for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, now that you say that it does what your book, when i when I said it disturbed me, what I meant is that Claire sees her dead husband, her husband, we know her husband is dead. We know she, he's dead. And we also know that he is, he is there and he's, see, she's seeing him and interacting with him. And that, Um, schism is so upsetting the further you get into the book Mm -hmm. that both things could be true Um, and what it's saying about her grieving process and the world that she thought that she knew um, is so much more profound than a book about a sad widow, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, So that makes a lot of sense that you describe horror that way. Um, And along those lines, like I've seen people ask you you know, well, is, is Richard really there? Like is he not really there? And the way that I've seen you answer that is like, well, it doesn't that's not really for me to say, and it's not really the point of the book. Um, this book resists like tight, complete mm-hmm. closed loops um in a way that is not frustrating at all. And I wondered if you could talk about um how you feel about h- how how hard it was to write a book that uh, that did that or didn't sure. do that? Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, I mean. there's so little closure in life right so I think you know it's something that I I I I, I mean I think for me as a reader it's I I I, I'm most interested in work and sort of aspire to write work that that illuminates a set of questions right in kind of human form Um, I'm less interested in in I think if the illumination is sufficiently um, rich and layered and interesting resolution becomes less important if that makes sense yes. um, and and I think books that are able to illuminate at such a level that the, the question of resolution for me as a reader at least is sort of suspended is kind of my like ideal in the fictive world and again I think the Babadook to, to go back to film would be a great example of that like yeah. it doesn't you know my experience of that movie would not be changed at all by knowing sort of definitively is is the Babadook real is it something that these characters have kind of generated? somehow Um, but I yeah I mean I think you know it's interesting the the really early seeds of this book um, was a kind of call and response to a novel um, called Piano um, by a French writer named Jean Escheneau if anyone's read that book but it's re- it's very good and it's, uh, it's in three parts as is the third hotel and it's um, concerns a pianist in Paris named Max um, and he's killed at the end of the first section and then sort of traverses the afterlife. There are a few in, which is like this labyrinth bureaucratic Structure and then there are a few um, options that you have and you're sort of assigned to one place or another and he's assigned to the option Where you 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 return to your old life? Um, So he goes back to Paris and but his appearance has been changed so no one can recognize him and there's this rules about what he can do and what he can't do and he um, you know, he, but he has, like, a job and an apartment and can have sex and, you know, but he's dead also. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's like, but if you saw him on the street you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. And the kind of profound, like, liminality of that, and if a dead person can do all those things, then how, what, then what makes a person in that, in the context of that fictive world, what makes a person alive? And where's where's the sort of line between those two realms? Um, so that was a, a, a very, like, influential book for me, and, and certainly informed the representation of, of mm-hmm. Richard uh, in this novel but I also think so I would mentioned before that I'm in an anxious fire um, and it was really like paralyzingly bad for a while I eventually went to therapy and now it's much better um, but there was a time where I, I would I mean I was in a state of absolute like blackout terror when I got on a plane while you were doing um, book tour stuff? yeah, yeah it was, <laughs> wow. it was, I feel really bad for my like it was very interesting going back to just travel spaces, how like different people engaged or didn't engage if the person next to you is like sobbing and having a panic attack. And mm-hmm. some people were like, I'm reading my Kindle and this is like absolutely not happening. <laughs> I, can just, I can will this whole experience away. Um, and you become sort of, there's that, that awareness of being like possibly the odd story that they're gonna tell. Yeah. Like you won't believe who I had to sit next to on the plane. A woman, who's was out of her mind. <laughs> So, um, and you know, and it's like, I've read the statistics, I know how unlikely it is that a plane is just gonna fall out of the sky, which is my, that was my sort of paralyzing fear. And yet at the same time, nothing was realer to me than that terror. And I know, like the intellectual part of my brain knew it wasn't a fiction, I knew it wasn't real, and yet the same, at the same time, in those moments, it's like the realest thing available. And so I, I don't think it's necessary, um, I mean, Claire and Richard in this context is a sort of extreme example of that idea but it's not it's not necessary for something to be real real in order for it to feel powerfully real Mm -hmm. I think and so I I was kind of more attuned to the feeling of it than placing it in a sort of binary context of like is he or isn't he and this is going to be resolved somehow at the at the end yeah
0: yeah um I feel that way in elevators If I take an elevator, I know it's not probably gonna crash to the bottom of the floor, but it's as though it has already happened. Like it's already happened, and I can't, I can't get in it. Um, Okay, so I have a question I want to ask you about marriage because to me this book seems as much a a novel about marriage as it does about as it is about grief or or horror or um, limbo. Um, I'm gonna read a small section that I really love. Um, Is that okay? Sure. (laughs) Um, She had never been drawn to ritual, yet she'd permitted herself to imagine that particular leap of marriage might bring about a sense of completeness, would perhaps even provide an answer to an invisible question, one that she could sense, could almost taste in the back of her mouth, but could not articulate. Of course, marriage had not led her to a sense of completeness. Rather, it had introduced different sets of questions, one after another, and ultimately led her to the drastic incompleteness of being married to a man whose death, the exact circumstances, was uncertain. And if death was uncertain, a life in turn was made uncertain, or the uncertainty that had always been there was exposed. In hindsight, it seemed like a near radical act on their part to not have children, to refuse that natural narrative impulse for closure. Closure in the sense that the purpose of your marriage was inarguable, to produce this child, and that a person's essence still claimed a place in the world. In this way, the dead could continue to move forward in time." Um, and I was rereading this book this week, and I am getting married. And as a writer, <laughs> I feel, I feel this, those paragraphs so clearly, because um, I think as, like, a modern woke woman, you think, like, I don't need a piece of paper to, sure, you know, yeah. and then and then as a writer trying to write vows, this idea of forever or um, I know you completely and you know me and you see me, like, feel very um, insufficient, mm-hmm. and what I love about what this book investigates is that it talks about marriage as a, a deepening mystery, like... The fact that we bind ourselves to someone else forever um, only, uh, that that perhaps what's beautiful and complicated about marriage is that people have secret selves and Mm -hmm. that they continue, those secret selves continue to grow as the known selves do. I wondered, I, I, the second time I read this, I really did read it as a book also about marriage, and I wondered if that was something that you thought about when you wrote it um, and, and sort of what your thoughts on that are.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think... Um, and, you know, you could expand marriage in some ways to, to sort of think about, like, any intimate relationship. You know, siblings, um, parent-to-child, romantic relationships, or, like, even a really deep friendship. I mean, there are just limits to knowing. Mm-hmm. And it is a kind of radical uncertainty that we all, we all sort of accept in any kind of relationship. Like, as much as we, you know, as much as we... <laughs> I see a few people who seem to be here in Paris who are now <laughs> looking at each other <laughs> nervously... Um, but, uh, th- you know, there as, as much as we feel like we know a person so well and we know their tells and we know their nuances and they, we know their su- subtleties, there's no real way to inhabit thought, right? Yeah. Um, in, a, in a completely definitive way. And I think, you know, it does, I don't think it necessarily has to be a bad or scary thing. I mean, just as someone who's been married... Um, Really fantastic guy. Just say that uh, for for a long um, for a long time now. Uh, I mean, it can be a, a wonderful sort of thing that keeps the relationship interesting, right? When you're sort of seeing new dimensions of a person, and you're like, "Wow, I didn't quite realize you were like so into that thing," or you found or you found a new dimension to your yourself and then it in turn becomes accessible to the other person i know we were um we both box uh and we were talking about how we want to talk talk about boxing and we were like just forget the book we're just going to talk about (laughs) boxing and dogs and astrology yeah um uh but um That, you know, I mean, I remember like when I got really into boxing and all of a sudden I was sort of organizing my life around boxing. I mean, I could tell my husband, Paul, was sort of like, this is a this is a different side of you that I've not seen before. Like, this is interesting. What's going on? Um, So, I mean, there are many different, I think, just kind of mundane ways that that can, you know, that can manifest. But then there's, you know, the, the sort of taken to kind of its most extreme, the question of um, the secret self and how that can it can be sort of a frightening thing, that the things that are being withheld that we, you know, we don't we don't know and the secret lives that people might be living that we don't have, we don't have access to, and what's sort of happening in those spaces. Um, but I I think it's also like it to me it seems kind of like a two-way mirror to, you know, that I'm I'm interested in um, if you have a narrative in which someone has been living a kind of secret life, like what does that refract back onto the other person? And what does it say about sort of their capacities and the nature of their gaze that they miss this other dimension? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, what's the kind of relational interaction between those two things? Yeah. Um, so so that, I think that, that the relational piece is probably what interests me the most.
0: Okay. Well, let's just talk about boxing then.
2: Oh yeah. Okay. Um, I,
0: I opened the Yeah. yeah, I think um, yeah, th- I started last year. I think you did too, right? Or yes, a, I a, did. Longer than a yeah. ago. But you did this really interesting thing when you were on a writing residency in the spring. Yes. Um, you filmed yourself boxing every day as part of like your writing practice just to sort of log those. It looked like you were just logging the, yeah. the practice hours. Yeah. Um, why did you do that?
2: Yeah. Um, I I I mean it was exactly like that. It did feel like I would do like a short video or something, and I would st- Instagram story stuff. Um, yeah, I think it was accountability. It was a way of like tracking my own pro- progress. I should also say I'm not sporty. Um, I've never played <laughs> a sport before, really, and um, and and so I also just had worked i got I got truly serious about it this spring and had worked really, really hard. I was going to the gym like early in the morning, five days a week, I was working really, really hard to be able to do stuff that was actually like fairly basic, but be able to do it well. Um, so I mean, I think I was also, you know I was eager to not uh, lose all of my Yeah, my progress Um, but yeah I had drills that I was doing with tennis balls and shadow boxing and footwork drills and all of that stuff Um, but I do think you know and this one for those of you who have played a sport I mean this would not this is not necessarily a a novel not it's actually not a novel thought at all but I mean I do think for me there's synergy between the two disciplines because it's all craft it's all craft and just sort of like Writing, you know, a really great scene in fiction is doing 20 different things simultaneously and it's doing it so seamlessly that it looks like it's only doing one thing but you feel... The, the dynamicness mm-hmm. that comes with the, the multiple kinds of work that a scene is doing. I feel like boxing is exactly the same. If you watch a professional fighter, it looks like they're moving in one way, but they're sort of like 15 micro movements that are making, you know, the elegance and the sort of power mm-hmm. possible. Yeah. Um, and so I feel like there's, there's a pretty deep relationship between the two in some ways. Yeah,
0: and the study of it is, like, becoming good at that means... Uh, training yourself to do those 15 micro movements without thought, like mm-hmm. without real Absolutely. conscious thought. Absolutely. And I think it's the same with writing in that like some things, but you train them to be instincts in you. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never done anything. I've done a lot of exercise fats, but I've never done anything <laughs> that <laughs> takes my entire, I lose time. I think I might've written this to you, yeah. but in the same way that I lose time when I write where, Stop thinking about the clock and what I'm doing and how long it's going to take. And I really like that about, because I feel like there's so few things in this world where that happens.
2: Absolutely. And there's, yeah. And especially if you're new to it and it's like, you know, have you sensed, have you sparred at all? Just with my
0: trainer. Yeah. Yeah,
2: um, But especially if you have someone who's like, like coming towards you, like there's really not space to think about anything else. Yeah. Yeah. It's just everything else that's going on in your life kind of evaporates. I feel like it is like a sober way to exist outside time. That's how I've described it to
0: people yeah yeah I mean maybe also dangerous though (laughs) like as dangerous as drinking Um, so um, one thing I noticed when so known you on the internet for a long time and I noticed maybe a year and a half ago you started to get into maybe probably longer but into astrology and psychics you would see I think psychics is that correct Um, I'm dying to see a psychic if anyone has a recommendation Um, but uh, that makes a lot of. I first of all, I was like, "Is Laura okay? <laughs> like, what's happening?" But um, reading the book, it makes a lot of sense because it th- it seemed to me like, well, maybe you're trying to access this like other way of knowing who we are mm-hmm. that um feels mysterious because it doesn't have the same roles that we know. Um, is that what you were yeah. doing, or were you just sort of getting into that?
2: Well, I I come by it honestly. My mom is a long time psychic, like. Uh, really aficionado Um, and even now at this point she's like I've sworn off psychics i am never seeing another psychic again and then she's like except for this one person that my hairdresser recommended (laughs) so it's like she like can't she like can't quit it but she started seeing psychics her father it's so strange my grandfather who's a dairy farmer in Tennessee took her to see her first psychic which doesn't wow. make any sense to me at all. And her, she was, she also was a psychic and a hairdresser who ran both businesses out of her home in East Nashville, which is a very popular part of the city now, but at the time was, you know, fairly like rural. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's, my mom has memories of her. I wrote an essay about this recently that's coming out in an anthology, and she has memories of kind of going to see this person. And um, so, so it's, 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 it's in my, yeah, it's in my bloodstream. Yeah. Um, but I think. You know, I mean, what I had said before about how there's so little closure in life, I mean, I think that's true, right? You know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we we are, or I, just to own it completely myself, are not kind of closure-seeking people. Um, So certainly I think I've I've consulted, you know, um, astrologists, and uh, I do with my students, I do like a 30-minute lesson at the appropriate time every semester on what mercury and retrograde is and how they can like appropriately prepare for it and I really I like stand by a, a pedagogical practice and they are so grateful to know
0: yeah yeah that there's a reason for the pain and the suffering yeah, yeah. and also
2: I'm like look the queue for the printer is going to be really long you're going to run out of printing credits all the planets are spinning backwards I don't want to hear about it yeah you need to give yourself extra time <laughs> Astrology is not destiny. Yeah. You can work with you can work with the energy. So that's yeah. Um it's like a big part of my if I ever had yeah. to yeah, write a statement of teaching philosophy, it'd be like <laughs> that would be in there. Um so I, you know, so it's in some ways it's kind of a way of understanding, you know, the the various frequencies that we might be moving through at different points of time. And sometimes, but I think also, which I think is really, you know, it's typically not like a like a very satisfying experience. But I've totally gone to psychics or consulted psychics because there I was something I was looking for an answer. Yeah. I was looking for closure. And I think the best people actually um, won't give that to you because they know they can't yeah um and but sometimes there can be a kind of you know roundabout sort of closure that comes from just making that sort of contact and yeah. and i do, i do think that you know <clears throat> uh i'm not so much someone who believes that if you know a, a, a really talented medium is like you know, truly psychically g- gifted, but just um, where where they're existing on some in some sort of magical realm, but rather like it makes it seems plausible to me that some people are maybe attuned to different frequencies, like um, that 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 a lot of other people aren't quite on. Yeah. Um, and I think fiction is kind of like that too. You know, I think about that a lot when I'm reading a book. Like, what is the frequency of the book? And and I think a, a really you know when you're having a really trans- reading experience the book is kind of defined its frequency and then invites you in, into it yeah. um, and, and and you know and of course like there's so much literature too that deals with dream logic the subconscious gives you a, a different language for kind of understanding the world or some aspect of the world and so yeah. I think there's yeah I think there's synergy there as well
0: yeah. we also have the same birthday
2: yeah we do and but we're both Gemini's like, yeah, yeah. You're apart, right? yeah <laughs>
0: Two Gemini's on one stage. I know. Any, like, anything could happen. people are on this stage? Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, there's a lot of people in this room. We should take a couple questions from the audience if they have them. Yes. yes. I'm sorry I'm late for your talk, but I'd like to hear, um, I mean,
2: if you're, if, you, if, you, if you're not overcome by pathology, doesn't the secret self always want to merge with the public self? Isn't that a goal that we
1: all have to get those two lives synchronized
2: in? Yeah, I... I mean I think it I think in my own experience it can be really um dislocating if you feel like the gap between the secret and the public is is like an ocean you know what I mean Um, so if you feel like your private world there's maybe a major disconnect between your outfacing self and your sort of private self I think that can be a a dislocating um, it can be a dislocating space to be in Um, but at the same time I I personally am sort of comfortable with some space between them I, I maybe it's that maybe it's the Gemini in me, but um, but but that that's sort of that idea that you know we we exist in different contexts with different levels of kind of public and private depending on what sort of space we're in, um, and that the private, you know, it's not that I'm like a different person here than I am if I was just you know having a drink with a friend or on the phone with like my dad or something like that, but um, but but I, I I don't necessarily feel that um, all you know, they need to be, like, merged completely, that it, it's okay for that, there to be a little room between them. And I don't know if that's, you know, the, the, the healthiest way to think about it or anything, but that's just sort of how I've come to feel about it. I like what you're saying. Let me see if I understand. I like the premise that no one can inhabit thought, but don't we use talk as a negotiation tool? And then what you're telling me, if I'm hearing correctly, is silence also as a part of that conversation? Absolutely. No, I completely I agree with that. Yeah
0: anyone else? Yes. In the
1: back.
2: You. I yeah. think that's you.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. we are just going to be all question. about all about signs? Now yeah, as yeah, as a Capricorn. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know, I my first two books were story collections, and it was that. I think that was a real when people are sort of like, how? What was the what was the transition between? You know, how did you tr- transition between like the short form and the long form? I mean, I think one challenge was just sitting in a state of unfinishedness for a really long time, you know? And when you finish a draft of a story, even if you're like, I don't like this, I'm going to put it in the recycling bin and never speak of it again. I mean, there is, to go back to that word closure, there is still the closure of having finished a draft, right? Um... But with the novel, um, I mean, you know, of course, novelists work in all different ways. But for me, it's you are staying in that state of uncertainty for a long, long time. And I'm also someone where my drafts tend to go through really major evolutions. So where I start and where I land, it's like they have permutated in all kinds of ways and in ways that I could not have imagined at the outset. So staying in the state of sort of literal unfinishedness, like, the project is still ongoing is one piece of it but there's also staying in the state of imaginative unfinishedness being open to reevaluating the structure that I put down being open to being surprised I feel like there's material that I'm always ignoring that um, it's like it's like a piece of like grain of sand in the corner of my eye like there's material that I'm always ignoring um, but I don't know it or I can't kind of confront it until a certain point in the process and then I do and I'm like oh but also yes (laughs) so that so I think I mean there are many many kind of layers of unfinishedness and openness Um, and I think to sort of be able to stay in that space for a sustained period of time is often you know it can be very demanding and there's all kinds of you know difficult um emotions that can rise out of that too like self doubt you know comes comes knocking when there's there's no you know there's no like end in immediate end in sight, and you're like, what am I? I oh, I feel like I always go through multiple periods where I have I like wake up at two a.m. and I'm like in a cold sweat, and I'm like I cannot write this book. I will never finish this book. This is going to ruin my life. Um, and and you know and but that's just part of it. It's just part of it. Uh, and I and I do think that there's something about getting to the other side of it that really it changes you. I think in some ways, um, it, it you're I don't feel like I'm the same quite the same person at the out that I am on the other end, and I, I, th- I mean, I think that, that makes sense to me, that I, I, I wouldn't be. Um, so it's like you have to be open to kind of the work changing you in some maybe just small but like perceptible ways.
0: Uh, what is your sign and what is your question? <laughs> I have a cancer. Uh, I
1: think that means I'm moody but loyal. Uh, <laughs>
2: Definitely. So two people that come to mind, like straight away, there's this novel called The Naked Eye um, by Yoko Tawada that just changed my life. It changed me. It changed the way I thought about fiction. It changed my understanding of what's possible in the novel form. Um, The Illumination is so powerful. Uh, It it is an incredible book. Uh, So I would recommend that's like one of those books that if I if I had a million dollars, I would like stand on a street corner and just like give it away to people. Um, it's it's a fantastic book, also very much about film and the sort of collapse of like the cinematic world and the the real real world. Um, and I and the enjoy um, Joy Williams is also a writer that I really love, and I think she's you know her stories like. The country honored guests. Those are two of my favorites of hers. I would, if you haven't read Joy Williams, I think that the new and selected is a great place to start. But she's someone who tackles the sort of toughest human questions about, you know, what does it mean to be alive, death, and so on, all the like super cheerful stuff, but she's also really funny. Um, and it's like a brittle humor, but I think she's really, really funny. Um, and, and I think that she's, the, again, the, the illumination is so, so, so powerful in her work. So those are two people that come to mind. Have you met her? Um, I met her once and I was so sort of odd that I just, she was very nice, but I think I gave kind of like, mo- like she was asking me kind of polite questions and I was just like, yeah. you know, like I was, I was.
0: So, yeah. Cause was, you're a super fan. Yeah. I'm I a super
2: fan. Yeah. She's not on the internet, which relieves me because otherwise yeah. she would be like, is this person stalking me? Yeah. <laughs> like, <Yeah.
0: laughs> why
2: does she talk about me all the time? Yeah. I heard um, she doesn't do
0: email even. No. Yeah. She's only. like completely. Yeah. That's how you write.
2: Completely off, off offline.
0: One more. Yeah, in the back. Yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love sentences, um, and 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 that, I mean, so the line has always been really, you know, in, important to me, um, and I think, you know, it's a little bit, someone had asked me, and I thought that this was a really interesting question, um, I came from San Francisco, it was an event I was doing in the Bay Area, had asked, um, if if you keep this thought log, right, how do you how do you know when sort of my own musings about horror films or travel or tourism or whatever, like how do you know, how do you sort of make the transition between that kind of writing and like writing fiction? And I was like, that's a super interesting question. And um, it took me a minute to kind of like think that through. But I what I came to is that there are moments where all of a sudden I I recognize that it's not my eye anymore, it's the character's eye. And it's not my voice, it's the character's voice, which sounds counterintuitive because, of course, like Claire, like, you know, is, is of me. Um, but but it's like it's like I have put on a different set of goggles and I'm seeing the world through her vantage. And I think that that, you know, will, will always inform sentences. You know, the characters, even though it's not a first-person novel, but even in the third person, like the characters cadence their way of seeing what they notice and why they notice it. Um, and so I think that a lot of the kind of sentence-level choices are generated by... Um, just moving deeper into into Cl- Claire's eye, um, and 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 yeah, and what and what she sees as she as she moves through the world. I also am um, sort of the more practical and I'm a big believer in reading one's work aloud, and I read this novel aloud many, many, many times, which is tedious, and it, it takes a long time, and my dog st- starts to look at me strangely after a while. My husband's a writer, so he's like, "You do you," but um, but the but, yeah, uh, and, I, and I do think that hearing prose and sort of line editing at the sonic level also, you know, tends to make sentences uh, sharper and more impactful.
0: Um, maybe we'll get to the signing part of the evening, okay. I think. Um, but sure. let me, can I do like a lightning round with you? Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, what is a book that you're embarrassed that you haven't read? Mine is Anna Karenina. Oh, um <laughs> Oh no. Uh
2: mine that. is Middlemarch, I oh. think. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> um what book are you most excited to read next? Oh, I just I feel like
2: I, I like so many titles are yeah, are are flooding me. Um there is actually a Cuban writer named Wendy Guerra uh, who um, Atchiepia has is translating her a novel of hers that Melville House is publishing in November, I think, called Revolution Sunday. And there's a copy waiting for me at home, um, and I'm going to tear into it and start reading it like immediately.
0: Um, what's the best thing about book tours?
2: Um, I think, uh, seeing people that I love and I don't get to see as much, um, as I, as I wanted to, uh, but also visiting bookstores, like, especially as an East Coast person who doesn't, you know, I'm not on the West Coast. I've heard, been hearing about Skylight, that it's this amazing bookstore and everyone loves Skylight and, 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 but I'm like, I, you know, but you get to actually see it and walk around and meet people here. And I visited a lot of bookstores in the Bay Area and it was like such a joy to be like, city lights i've heard yeah. about like it's like someone that like it's like a mutual friend that you've been hearing about yeah you know for years and you're like and i feel like when we meet we're gonna have so much in common and i'm just gonna love you like instantly <laughs> um and and i think that that's really that's great too yeah. and also like eating and drinking and meeting people's dogs sometimes oh, yeah. um yeah i i encourage dogs at, at events
0: what's the worst thing about book tours
2: um, I think though, I, I mean, I think at a certain point you just get tired, you know, and it's this sort of tired where like a good night's sleep won't necessarily fix it. But yeah. I, yeah, I mean, travel delays, tur- actually for me, the worst thing is, would be turbulence really. That's yeah. the, yeah. yeah. Air, airplane difficulties. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like work so hard to get over the anxiety hill that I think, but if I had like a really bad flight, it would be, I would, I, f- I would lose ground. So yeah. I'm always hoping for clear, smooth skies.
0: Um what movie are you most excited to see?
2: Um I I've been dying to see this is not I'm bi- I'm behind on ironically for a book that's largely about film behind on movie watching and I've been wanting to see Phantom Thread for ages. Oh my god. Um
0: so good. Okay, I feel like it's very divisive though some people
2: Audience it. audience reactions have like affirmed that yeah. this is a thing that I should I should prioritize.
0: Yes, you will love it.
2: Yeah, so Oh great! Oh, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back just yeah, just to have like back. a phantom thread, a phantom yeah. thread debrief. But I, yeah, I mean, I love, um, I love Daniel Day Lewis, um, and I'm really, I'm very, so I'm very excited to see. And I love clothes, so I'm. What, yeah. what could go wrong?
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, uh, you have a short story that's becoming a movie. Speaking of, movies. I do.
2: Though. Yeah.
0: Um, what is? Where is that? What is that? So
2: it's a short story from my first collection. Um, it was adapted by a screenwriter named Jenny Halper. And it went, I actually will say, I don't know very much about the film world. That's all just kind of a haze to me. I've never done, um, like, writing fiction takes, like, all of my both, like, physical, intellectual, and emotional energy. Mm-hmm. So I've, I'm not, yeah, I can't, like, do any other kinds of writing. But um, so I've never, you know, adapted, done and written an adaptation or anything like that. But um. It really, it was a total labor of love project for her. She, um, she had read the story. I mean, she's been, she wrote a first chapter of the script maybe like four or five years ago and just has been like quietly kind wow. of putting this project together, attached to a director, attached to a producer. Um, and then Naomi Watts um, came aboard to play um, the, one of the lead characters and that's when sort of things really became like official and like this is a this is a real you know thing that is is likely to happen so they're they're supposed to start they're supposed to start shooting uh, next summer um, also I, I have a friend who who works in film who said making a film is like playing Jenga in a wind tunnel like, and and each piece costs like five million dollars so I mean I do think it's like one of those things my sense is you don't know like 500 percent for sure that it's actually happening until they're like on-site with cameras yeah. but It's, yeah, but it's, it's, she did an amazing job with the adaptation, um, and they put together a really exciting cast, and so, um, I, yeah, I'm I'm excited. Yeah,
0: Yeah. I love that collection, um, and everybody should definitely buy this, it's unlike anything I've read this year, it's unlike anything I've read in a long time, and it is unsettling in the best way, um, because it feels very new, and, and, uh, yeah, um, yeah. And I encourage you to get your book signed and ask her more questions. Yeah. But thank you for thank coming, you, everyone. Thank you,
1: everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.